0: a bi-weekly podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. Do so by revisiting, overlook, and underappreciated films. My name is Courtney Small. Uh, before we dive into the show today and introduce our special guest, we have a little bit of housekeeping to take care of. First of all, co-creator of the show, Andrew Hathaway, has officially stepped away from the show. Uh, he's got a lot going on personally and professionally. So he's given us his blessing for us to continue, but if you want, you can still support Andrew's work and follow all the great things he's doing over at his website, can'tstopthemovies.com Which brings me to, to my second bit of housekeeping news Film critic Kristen Lopez has agreed to become the full-time co-host of the show, so we're happy to have her on board officially. Kristen's not here today, but you know what, we've got uh, another wonderful film critic in her place Today we're joined by recurring guest Caroline Morissette, and she is a writer full of cinematic knowledge. Uh, you've probably seen her work in Rumor. Magazine. She's written for Graveyard Shift Sisters. She's also a published author in Women in Horror Annual. And on top of all of that, as if that wasn't enough, she's a programmer at the Blood in the Snow Film Festival, which runs from November twenty second to the twenty seventh. Did I get those dates right? Yep,
1: that's perfect. Yes. Oh, you make me
0: sound so fancy. <laughs> hey, you, you know what? You do a lot of great things, and as you know. Outside of just being a friend, I'm, I'm one of your biggest fans and champions, so anytime I can promote all the great stuff you do. Is there anything else you want to talk about? I think you were you were also interviewed in a magazine recently. You were, there was an article written about you.
1: Well, yeah, um, in the third edition of Grim Grim Magazine, they just had their launch on, uh, I believe it was Thursday night, so we went out to that. And uh, yeah, I'm interviewed with uh, Jen Gorman, who's like our festival coordinator, PR person, like she covers so much for us. Um, So yeah, they just talk about, they asked us to talk about programming for Canadian Film Festival and genre film festival as well. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah.
0: And I know you guys haven't uh, officially announced the, the full slate of films, but How's this year's festival shaping up?
1: Pretty fantastic, I would say. Uh, we'll be announcing our lineup at Horrorama on November the 3rd. So we're looking forward to that. We have a few meetings to wrap things up, but uh, it's looking really good. So
0: Excellent. And once you announce those things, we'll definitely be sure to, to share it via our social media pages and links. Normally, we like to kick off each show by discussing a short film because we love short films. Unfortunately, due to the Canadian Thanksgiving weekend and me just being... Kind of out of sorts. I forgot to pick a short this week. So, Carolyn, if you're all right, we're just going to jump straight into the feature film. Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> our, our main film for today is the horror film Thirst, directed by Park Chan Wook. Uh, Carolyn, I know that this is one that you had recommended we discuss, and I was actually very curious to revisit the film myself. Uh, the film focuses on a priest who essentially becomes a vampire after a failed medical experiment. So, Carolyn, do you want to kick us off and say why you wanted to t- discuss this film today?
1: I like it's a tough one to talk about because it's it's kind of a mishmash of Dory um, lines and of narratives as well. Like, and I, it always kind of sat in the back of my head. Like, I really like to talk about this film when I revisited it again for this this podcast. It actually. It made me realize there were quite a few things that you could talk about. I mean, it's not perfect. And I've read quite a few reviews where I think people were expecting it to be more of um, like a cut and dried story. But it's not. I mean, when you have a priest as a vampire already, it's not going to be cut and dry. <laughs> so I really, I think it, it didn't get enough love, I thought. And I love uh, Chen Park Boop because he's just such a brilliant director.
0: I was one of the people that wasn't big on this film when I first saw it. I appreciate it a little more now revisiting it, but similar to I think a lot of the people that you reference, I have problems with the tonal shift in the film. And watching it now, there's a lot that I like and, and we're gonna get into, but there's there's a part in the middle where things kind of really take a turn that Still doesn't quite sit for me, but I love this director so much, and even in a film of his that I was kind of lukewarm on initially, there's still so much interesting aspects to it, especially in terms of style and, like, how they craft some of the characters, so... Uh, This is a really interesting film to to dive into. So why don't you talk about the things that you you like about the film first?
1: I was raised Catholic. So to me, a priest having this moral dilemma of becoming a vampire, like something that, you know, is obviously the opposite of everything he stands for in terms of mythology. I was really fascinated by that. And I think that's what kind of grabbed me as well as the lead. uh, What's his name again? Let me just double check his name. I loved him as well in um I believe he was in the host. He was fantastic, and I love that actor. Kang Ho song, I believe. yes, Kang Ho song. and he was in the host, and ever since then uh, he's kind of I've become a fan of his, and I just think he's a great actor. So to see him in this light really fascinated me. Uh, and I love vampire movies, so that's the other thing. <laughs> so I, I you know, I figured... Also, I love the director, so I wanted to see what he could do to the vampire genre. So yeah, I think that's what drew me to it.
0: It's a, definitely an original take on a lot of vampire lore that we're used to, and I like that you do have a priest at the center of it, and a priest who you know becomes a blood sucking vampire but it's he still got enough faith in him actually I, let me rephrase it i think he has i think becoming a vampire makes him more human if that if that makes any sense because he, he even though he has a thirst for blood he's very humane in his approach to to life like he's not one of those people that takes advantage of it in terms of being able to kill people or do what he wants he still tries to lead a very solemn life and is a little surprised at the way how people look at him and and view his miraculous recovery from this surgery because he's one of 500 people to to survive yeah for him to um go through that experience. He still believes that there's something bigger than him but he doesn't feel that he is the embodiment of that. It's almost... He looks at people a little strange for why are you kind of worshiping me when I'm not the I'm just a, a, a average Joe.
1: Yeah, I think that that's a really good point because it just seemed like he was clinging on to his um moral values even though he had this hunger like this thirst where he needed to feed and he you know compromised to, in order to get his food while not killing randomly. So, yeah, I think there he really was kind of wondering like especially when he when his mentor uh, his higher up um, in the wheelchair. I forget. Oh yes,
0: um, I'm forgetting the, the the name as well. But he was like, I guess his a higher up, a higher level priest.
1: Yeah, So and he was like, you know, make me a vampire. And he's like, you want to be a vampire? Are <laughs> <Yeah>, your mind? <laughs> you know. And he's like, you know, you you can't see the sunlight because it's some. Um, his superior was uh, was blind and in a wheelchair. And he's like, you know, once you become a vampire, you can't see. Like, you have to be practical about this. Again, even with his superior who wanted to be a vampire, you no know, consideration of the actual implications of, A, a priest becoming a vampire and not actually being able to see the sun once you get regain your sight. So, yeah, I think he... Um, the character's father sang hunt
0: oh, the, yeah the priest
1: the priest he was just like people are out of your minds. <laughs> i'm <laughs> a vampire <laughs> so yeah i enjoyed that aspect a lot and i
0: and i also loved how they do i guess the subtle things of, of him becoming a vampire because he after he survives this surgery and i guess he will in theory he technically dies for a short period and then yeah comes back to life through this blood transfusion and you see that his skin is better and he's kind of going about his day and at first he's all done up in bandages which kind of had a cool Dark Men, Invisible Man kind of vibe to it. And as the film progresses early on, he's basically going through... Life normally, like he's you know got a few of the welts and stuff on him, but there's that great scene when he starts to realize his senses are heightened because mm-hmm. they make in a, a bit of dark humor early on. They make reference to him smelling blood, having like a weird acute sense of smell, and and being almost sick by the the sense of blood. And you realize that yeah. well, the, the blood is is actually menstrual blood.
1: That, yeah, right. That
0: the, the the main female in this film happens, and like she kind of realizes, oh my gosh, it's me, and you know, runs off to the bathroom. But later on, he's in his house and he's just getting these visions. And you can see that everything from like a cat meowing in the distance to the the trees blowing to someone on a treadmill and the, the sweat under the armpits, all of that is hitting him all at once. And I thought yeah. that was a really cool way of introducing that he's got heightened abilities without having yeah. him do like the typical just running around town, flying all over the place. And I mean, you do see moments of him jumping and leaping from one level to the next. But I find there's a lot of Subtle, subtle nods to the typical tropes of the genre.
1: I really enjoyed that scene as well. And you know, when you do see him jumping around, it kind of made me think of um, pardon me, let the right one in. Oh yes, they don't do like the vampire skills in that way where you know it's it's so fantastical. it's just kind of a matter of fact like he can jump from a window, he can hang from a window as the main character um the main vampire in um let the right one in i forget uh I forget their name, but um, yeah, just kind of just kind of floated around or just did her thing and mm-hmm. it wasn't like it wasn't like this um grand scoring when she was flying or jumping out the window or whatever it just kind of happened and that's what i liked about his abilities
0: and i think with uh, is it Te the the main female yes uh, with her character when things happen and she starts to get abilities of her own then we start to see a little more of the I guess, traditional expectations. Like, we don't really see her having to develop her powers too much, but we see more of the using the powers for for mischievous and evil purposes. Yeah. Whether yeah. it be openly hunting prey by using herself as bait to get people passing by or using her femininity to, you know, play the victim when need to be. And then you see, like, she's got immense strength. So it, it's an interesting juxtaposition, the way how they had those two
1: characters set up. Yeah, it was... an it made me think of like, um, you know, the old school morality plays. Uh, it really came into that, uh, especially for some reason. It made me think of that because um, the priest had a recorder and it was very, it sounded very medieval to me. And I'm like, oh, this makes me think of a morality play. Like when I was in university studying, studying like Chaucer and all of that, mm-hmm. um, it really did have those elements. And then basically when those two become vampires, you see like the choices you can make when you're that type of supernatural figure you can either try to be good or just let loose and just you know (laughs) let the powers take over
0: he gets into this situation because he in theory wanted to be good like his we'll just call him father superior because i can't remember the character's name but uh the the old priest in the wheelchair told him early on you know don't even go anywhere near those experiments and there's other ways you can do it just prayer like any you don't know what's going to happen and science is essentially evil we see that the priest all he wants to do is good he's tired of seeing people die and i guess i didn't realize early on that a few of them are his fellow priests because when when he goes to that special experimental lab i believe it was in africa where they say that this whatever this virus is seems to only be inflicting white men and asian men and usually people of the cloth right because they're all single and he's so desperate to try and stop people from dying that he sacrificed himself to undergo the experiment so he can kind of see what's going on and hopefully change and and by fluke of luck you know he ends up sur- surviving this whole thing yeah. but in every step of the way he's still trying to do the right thing like when he's feeding it could have been easy for him to pick off people off the street but he instead uses the sick and kind of draws blood off of them, people that are in a coma. And then later yeah. on, he starts helping those who wanted to commit suicide, which at the beginning we're told is like the greatest sin that you could do. And he figures, <laughs> yeah. all right, well, let me try and turn this great sin into something humane. I will help you, you know, end your life while also giving me life as well through your blood.
1: It's kind of a, a skewed way of thinking, but he did think that he was doing good. And I really like the character of um, Te, Teju because she... She was treated like garbage. And once she kind of gains her freedom, although in a kind of unsavory, sinister way, she just runs wild. And I mean, in her situation, I don't know if I, I don't, I don't blame her really. You know, I mean, she had this horrible mother-in-law, this hypochondriac husband. And then she falls for this magnetic priest who's now a vampire. So, I mean, I don't blame her for running a bit wild.
0: It's interesting, though, because her connection to the priest is almost instantaneous. Like she's got, I guess once he becomes a vampire, they have this almost kind of um, psychic link of sorts where she's just drawn to him and he's attuned to to her desiring him, which you don't get, I think, when they... When they first meet, and I and I would say that Teju is probably the most fascinating character in this film because, as you said, she is treated so horribly at the beginning. She's the butt of the joke, like you know, her physical pain is amusement to the mother, Kang Wu, yes, Kang Wu, and just some of the other people around. And she hates being in this circumstance. She's been in this situation for a long time. Kang Wu apparently rarely touches her in a romantic way and she's essentially just a servant for people who don't see her as human and then as she starts to have the affair with the priest you see a different side to her like there's that great scene when they're playing uh majon and they almost had a romantic encounter so they're talking they're at the table with everyone and they're talking about Mahjong and the art of mahjong, and she's making a lot of innuendos about how skilled and good she is in bed. You know, yeah. to try to try and tempt the priest, and it's a, it's a, it's great because it's played for for laughs in terms of the audience knows what she's really meaning, but no one else at the table outside of the priest understands what she's meaning and you realize that well she's not this little innocent woman or victim that she's kind of being portrayed to be and then as we later on in the film, we see a completely different side of her one that yeah. is just all about i have power i've always had power i just needed uh, an outlet to
1: i guess you know exert that power and yeah and, and also she was kind of duping priests and she was making out like she was more abused than she actually was. So there's that complexity to her character where she's not as much of a victim as you think. Mm-hmm. So yeah.
0: And what did what did you think of her interactions with the mother, especially in the the second half of the film, where the or I guess the mother in law, uh, Miss she she's I guess in a state of physical shock. Yeah. Where she can only she can see things and hear things, but she she physically can't move.
1: Yeah. Well. Well. Well, I mean, I think Taiju took great pleasure in kind of seeing her, like, you know, being able to speak her mind to her without having any repercussions because she's basically an invalid. And then I think that towards the end, I believe it was when um, she thought Taiju thought she was going to be killed and then she wanted to die and go you know, meet her husband in death. I think she was kind of pleading to Mrs. Ra, and that kind of just kind of showed her, you know, to me, it just showed her duplicitous and very opportunistic, I guess.
0: It was interesting because seeing her try and plead to Miss Ra, who's immobile, to kind of forgive her and that she's the innocent bystander in this, but then at the same time, we'll turn around right in front of the same woman and, and talk to Father Hung about, you know, well, this was our plan all together and she she plays both sides openly in front of each other and always yeah. always seems to uh, work it so that it's to her advantage so she can be both the victim and the victor depending on who she's talking to and she's so confident and cocky that sometimes she, ac- she accidentally lets things slip that she should probably have kept secret.
1: Secret, yeah, for sure. Did you read that this was taken from an Emile Emil Zola book?
0: No, I didn't know. I didn't realize
1: that. Yeah, it's, um. let me just check the name. I think it's called Therese Raquin, I think. But it's a story from Emile Zola. I don't know if it's a novel or not. Let me just, yeah, it's Therese Raquin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, But yeah, so he, uh, apparently the um, Chanwick Park saw that story, and it kind of stuck in his head. And it's basically about um, a browbeaten woman who falls in love with her husband's schoolmate, I believe. And then they plot to kill the husband, and then they're haunted by the husband's ghost. So it's basically Thirst, but Thirst has the vampire theme thrown in as well. Yeah, I thought that was kind of fascinating. Oh no, that he's just so influenced by like classical writers, and that sort of thing.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because that synopsis is, I find really captivating. And I think the part of this film that always throws me and doesn't quite Set, sit right with me is how they incorporate being haunted by the husband's ghost because right. when they for me the film starts to lose its edge when they go on that fishing trip and essentially attempt to bump off the husband and right. it's played a lot for laughs like it, this is when the comedy I f- feels really starts to to ramp up and then how they introduce. The ghost of the husband Is at times both kind of Chilling and comedic Depending on the scene And I, I feel like you start to see The relationship between um, father Hun and chai ju start to crumble as they're both being haunted by these images of him and you know there's the, the great moment where she's in bed panicking and then she sees a vision of him on top of her and she goes underneath the sheets and he's the dead guys there again dripping wet under her but then you also get the comedic moment when they're making love and he just happens to be there the dead body's in literally in between them with a with a goofy grin on his face to play yeah. the humor and the back and forth of that kind of threw me off of it. And then I felt like they left that part just ends like the they almost forget the whole haunting and they go back to, well, she's becoming a vampire and now let's follow her on her on her journey. I just feel the way how they handled Kang Hoon or Kang are the, the husband, didn't quite sit well with me throughout the, the entire film.
1: Yeah, I agree because it was rather abrupt when they just kind of, OK, that's it. Like they kind of threw in the haunting and then dealt with their basically the disintegration of their relationship but yeah i kind of i felt some of the comedy wasn't really hitting the mark and they could have done without it i liked some of the the, the dialogue like the chemistry between um father hun and uh, taiju and their Chemistry and little innuendos and that sort of thing that I enjoy. But then, you know, it's true the the dead husband, um, the the haunting could have been handled slightly differently. Maybe with a little less comedy that might have kept, you know, kind of kept it a more of an even pacing in that in that regard.
0: Like I felt like that was the part where it really just goes 100%. Let's go for the comedic beats and then has problems trying to reign it back later on Um, because Mm. even the stuff with the mother-in-law there's moments of of humor but they still keep a certain darkness to it and i and i feel with the husband he is a horrible husband but it it felt like he was he was almost just dim-witted for for most of it and i know a lot of it is the the version that taiju is telling us of him isn't necessarily the version that we're seeing of him because she's pre- yeah. presenting a much darker version and we're seeing a guy who passes gas at the table and is pretty much yeah. just a, a grown a grown mama's boy, right? And doesn't and quite...
1: his nose wiped all the time and yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah.
0: Doesn't know how to fend for himself, doesn't really know how to, to handle a woman romantically. And then after he comes back as the spirit, I thought, okay, now we're going to start to see a really darker aspect like you know yes i'm goofy but you had no right in killing me now you guys are both gonna pay and there's there's some great imagery with him like the idea of him lying in bed between them with the the big boulder on his chest i thought was great and there's a scene where uh the priest is talking to i think it was taiju and in the later half where uh, mrs raw is immobilized and you see the ghost come up from behind him and and drag him down and then when he yeah. gets back up, he's dripping wet. Like, almost as if someone tried to drown him within the apartment... I'm like, oh, this is great. <laughs> you know, this is we're getting to some really chilling stuff, and then it's like, oh no, okay, that's that's it. Let's we're we're dropping him. We'll we'll show him in moments, but that's just like, oh, that felt like a missed opportunity. Like, and if if the crux of the original story was based on was the haunting and how it really impacts these these two characters that that plotted murder, I I, I was expecting that to come out a lot more on screen.
1: And it would have been nice to have seen maybe the ghost show up at the end, you know, for a bit of, um, you know, vindication. Yes. Because <laughs> I, I wasn't really sure when they had um, Mrs. Ra in the car at the ending. Um, I guess this is going to be a spoiler-filled podcast. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, yeah. We're, we, we're just going all for it, so.
1: Okay, so can I rewind a bit? So Father Hun and uh, tai J are now both vampires. He's trying to curb her in, but she's running amok, so... They finally, it's revealed that they did kill Taiju's husband. And Mrs. Ra reveals that with her eyes. And it's a really great scene. So, and it's during during a Mahjong game. So uh, Taiju kills everybody at the Mahjong game. <laughs> and uh, Father Hun decides to curb her. And they just drive off to this field. And um, he's going to basically, they're going to roast in the sun. So there's that scene where Mrs. Ra is in the backseat. And she's watching them fry in the sun. And I just wondered about that scene. I'm like, is that is that their penance for killing everybody? Or like, what was your opinion of that? Because I, I wasn't quite sure what to make of it.
0: That's an interesting notion because I've, I wondered about her being in the car as well. And I took it as basically they had done a lot of sinful things and, and You know, and the greatest sin of all could be suicide, but in this case, suicide is necessary because it's the only way that you're going to stop Teju from from running amok. But to have the mother-in-law in in the car, I guess, yes, it could be seen as a... a penance you know and that we killed your son so now you get to watch us burn but i almost felt like she didn't need to be there because she already knew that they had done a whole lot of evil you know she's she was there when they pretty much killed all her her friends or family friends that were were key in the the mahjong game so i don't know because i kept thinking but she still can't move and now you've left her on a cliff In a car, is she not going to die as well? Or are we just supposed to assume that the police will magically come by and get her? Like, I wasn't quite sure why they brought her.
1: There's a scene where Tai Zhu is now the vampire. She's making some sort of a drink for mrs Ra and taiju cuts herself and some of the blood goes into the drink mrs raw drinks it and so she has a little bit of the vampire blood which leads her to have a bit more mobility in a finger and that is when she reveals that she knows that they've killed her son so um with your comment then she would too also be affected by the sunlight right is that that's what you were getting at? yeah yeah
0: but not even yeah well yeah not even in terms of like she would die because of the vampire blood in her because i think it was too little i just think that you know if you put a a dog in a hot car and you roll up the windows the dog will get sick and possibly die or any animal and in this case the doors are open, and the any type of thing that would provide shade is removed. Even the the trunk of the car is gone. But she can't move anywhere, so she's just. I'm just thinking. Well, she's out there in the hot sun in a car. She's still going to be roasting because there's there's no shade or cover.
1: I think he put a phone at her fingertip, but it's like she's not going to be able to call. I think I remember. I don't know if he put a something under her hand. I believe it was a phone, but I, I'll have to look at it again. But mm-hmm. It's she's still not gonna be able to make a phone call like with a one finger gonna hit one yeah anyway yeah that was thing was a bit problematic
0: yeah and on top of that I know at that point we're supposed to see that oh Miss Rod's experienced all of this and she's kind of trapped in her own little horror show not being able mm-hmm. to move but she wasn't that nice of a woman to begin with you mean i, I know um taju said well she, she was nice enough that she always provided me with food and stuff but she never saw i guess her daughter-in-law as as, as an equal you know at one no. point when Wu realizes that his wife is gone and doesn't realize that she's with the priest what does the mother-in-law do she puts a lock on their door and essentially locks them in the, the room until she decides the next morning when they can come out. You know, th- moments like that, you're like, but you weren't a nice person yourself. I understand that doesn't warrant them to kill your, your child, but I didn't have much sympathy for her either
1: yeah Uh, you know it's funny you say that because i noticed i made notes on this um that the women in this movie they were either in servitude like the nurses or taiju or even um her friend evelyn she was the filipino wife of one of the Family friends, and she couldn't really communicate because she couldn't speak uh, Korean, so she was kind of stuck in a limbo there. It, it, and uh, Mother Ra was basically serving her son, but she she was quite she was a terrible person, as you pointed pointed out. And I felt like the um, Taiju was the only female character that had a bit of dimension to her that. You know, had some kind of like fire in her, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, I kind of found them all generally problematic, except for I, I have a soft spot for uh, Taiju. She was fallible. She was kind of an awful person too, but I could see why.
0: Yeah, and I, I agree with that because one of the things I also noticed is that a lot of the film comes from the male perspective and how the males view the women that mm-hmm. they, they interact with. And Taiju is interesting because in that that first scene when her and the priest are about to make love, but then they they get interrupted in a in a comedic moment. That's the first time you, where you really get to see her take agency and be in control of of the moment, and especially from a sexual standpoint. Because before that, uh, one of the individuals who's at the maja game makes reference to to someone being defiled or raped. But he was looking at Taiju when he said that. He, he says it with such a lecherous kind of look on him. And you realize yes. later on that he at least has been having some type of affair with her or that he's yeah. clearly enjoying, but she could really not bother with and even for her to Taju to become a, a vampire and be freed it is after you know the male decides okay i will bestow this new life on you i will give you new birth right and it's a it's very interesting how how it's handled
1: yeah it's true because when he she becomes a vampire he says happy birthday because she's never had a birthday party she doesn't even know when her birthday is so yeah for him to kind of um you know it also has like that um whole religious obviously religious background too like you know giving of life from the body and the blood of christ and that sort of thing so i'm sure i mean there's tons of probably papers written on vampirism and and sacraments and that sort of thing just kind of it really struck me when he said that happy birthday and and your point as well there's another thing too i noticed when he when father hun is trying to fall from grace he goes to the camp of his his base Basically his groupies And he pretends To rape a girl And I just thought You know You could have maybe Done something else Like punch someone In the face You know Yes. <laughs> does not actually rape her but it just it I'm like nah, you could have done something else you know
0: that scene felt very out of place for me and partly yeah. because it's so against his character that I still didn't understand what the purpose of that scene was because he pretends to, to rape this innocent woman and i guess the people rightfully so you know start throwing rocks at him tell him to get out of here so you needed to turn them away from you so that you can then commit suicide because I guess you didn't want to be seen as a martyr
1: yeah maybe that could be it too because I did my research on um, Catholicism in Korea and it was fascinating to me because it wasn't brought over by Europeans it was adopted by Koreans um, because it was a more, if you can believe it, a more enlightened view of the world for them. <laughs> oh, really? That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, and there were a lot of people who were killed because they took on Catholicism. So they were, they were made martyrs. So I think maybe that kind of, I, I could be reading way too much into it, but maybe that's what it is. He didn't want to be seen as a martyr or a saint or some, someone to be held up on a pedestal. So he did this heinous thing and, uh, you know, obviously succeeded. But I don't know in terms of um, like a, a, a film script or a narrative. I don't know if that really was necessary unless it was in the book, but I doubt it was. So, yeah that, that one kind of rubbed me the wrong way as well
0: I, part of the reason I feel it was unnecessary is because the the followers are so inconsequential to the story like if you remove them from the film the film plays almost the exact same way so yeah. that scene and again if we're if we're talking about a lot of the power being shown through a male gaze one of the most prominent forms of male Trying to take power, and I mean, obviously it happens both ways as well. But in this particular landscape, and especially in cinema, we're we're so used to seeing men rape women that I was like, to me, it didn't, it wasn't necessary. You know, if he's going to get his power back by you know ending the life that he gave um, Taiju, then that moment just i don't know it just felt out of place
1: yeah it really did because i remember the first time seeing it going did he just do what i think he did and then you know watching it again i mean i've watched it a few times over over the years but just watching it again recently it's just yeah it just it, it's true it's completely unnecessary it doesn't sit right um and it really does take away from the whole story, I feel, in general. Because really, you should be focusing on the relationship between Father Hun and Taiju and not this. Like, as you, it just, there was no point to it. If he, if, he to, if he wanted to fall from grace, he could have, you know, gone and like burned a church down or something. You know, they could say, oh, yeah, crazy Father Hun just burned down a church. So, <laughs> you know, instead of doing that kind of thing, I don't know. Or
0: the fact that, I don't know, you've got a bunch of dead bodies at the uh, apartment that you seem to hang out a lot at. <laughs> you know, there's there's a whole bunch of other ways that they could have exposed him. Um, what did you think about the film from a visual standpoint? Because there's a lot in this film that I liked. For example, there's a scene towards the end of the film where she vomits, but the, the blood is splattered, of course, on a pristine white floor in a really stylistic way. Um, there's the moment where the actors go from rooftop to rooftop and there's just a lot of really great moments from a visual standpoint so i just wanted to know what do you you think of the film just just visually
1: well i thought it was gorgeous and it it made me think of um the handmaiden in a way like there was a lot of there were a lot of dark interiors even though thirst is basically it's in modern day it there there seemed to be like a vintage feel to it i like the kind of the dark a blues a lot of a a cool palette and I really enjoyed that and I thought that when they painted the apartment white so that it could mimic daylight I actually thought instead of daylight just made me think of like another hospital room very clinical
0: yeah very sterile
1: sterile yeah and it just really it it was an interesting visually it was really interesting and it didn't really make me think of daylight it just I feel like it, it it was like um uh you know like for instance in the Matrix when they have that white kind of limbo area where they meet oh, I feel yes. like yeah I don't know what you would call that cinematically but it just made me think like that's it made you focus on the characters more instead of having like a you know a backdrop a home or or like a, a cave or something like that it just kind of made them more prominent so I I thought that was really interesting I don't know if it actually flowed well for me, but I thought it was an interesting kind of, it was an abrupt change from that very earthy, was like a um, darker earthy with a bit of blue tones um, to the darkness. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of moments like that, I find. Like, there's the, maybe in the latter half when he's looking out and all he sees is a sea of blood which I thought yes. was, was, was really a nice way to approach it. And even the way how he's just aware of the little details. Like, I think at one point where he's looking at his own elbow and there's like a little microscopic tick on, yeah. on the skin. Like, there's just a lot of really interesting and inventive shots in, in this film that regardless of what you think of the story and the directions it takes, it, you won't be bored by this film
1: yeah it's funny when um taiju is is stretching her vampire legs so to speak and she's jumping they're jumping from building to building it actually made me think of like almost like a like a musical you know like it just had that real fantastical look like i expected them to kind of start dancing or you know like to pull yes. the yeah it just it did have that kind of a charming even though i don't think they were particularly they were kind of arguing <laughs> but it just seemed very almost like a musical like it had a very nice feel to it and i think that's that's what he's known for is to throw in uh things that don't quite fit but somehow it it's pleasing to the eye
0: yeah and then that scene in particular i thought was fascinating because they're they're arguing so you've got this wonderful shot of them going rooftop to rooftop and he's chasing her symbolizing that you know both figuratively and literally he's he's behind he's he's lost a step and didn't realize how far ahead she now is of him and he he can't rein her in and it's, it's interesting because with the, the different tonal shifts and different styles in this film, it shouldn't work as well as it does for the most part. I, I don't think it works completely as one cohesive unit, but he's such a, a unique filmmaker. And even when you mentioned The Handmaiden, I, I was thinking, watching this, is was like, oh, this this film is works perfectly if you um, watch it back-to-back with The Handmaiden. Because The Handmaiden, again, completely different style, different tone, but another film where women are perceived as being weaker and then as you get through that film you start to realize they they have a lot of agency and once they or i guess once they get the opportunity the right moment to exert it they just turn everything on its head
1: yeah absolutely and i think you know i i kind of like that he writes female characters like that because, you know, generally women are under underestimated. So it's great that he kind of has that twist and, you know, kind of that empowerment <laughs> and that women are that resourceful in his stories uh that they'll kind of make a way for themselves carolyn
0: where can folks find you
1: i have my blog um it's called Rose, rosemary's com. i'm going to be uh, launching another one as well so stay tuned for that i just have to actually get around to doing it <laughs> and uh as you mentioned before blood in the snow film festival is coming up uh next month november 22nd to the 27th so i will be there with bells on
0: <laughs> okay and uh if they want to follow you on Twitter.
1: Oh, yes. It's um, RMPixie, at RMPixie. So you can follow me there. I'm actually making an effort to be more involved on in social media because I've been getting lazy. So, <laughs> And I should mention, I, I, I am more active on uh, Instagram, and it's um, at CMO25. So it's cemo 25 so you can check me out there pictures of my cats
0: (laughs) (laughs) they are important as well we we are a fan of cats on this show if you want to reach me you can reach me directly on twitter at small mind or if you want to contact the show on twitter that's at changing reels ac quick shout out to seth gordon because he created the the new um, cover art that you're probably seeing when you download this episode so thanks to him for all his fine work that Just his continual support of this program. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can change the conversation on diversity in cinema one reel at a time.